Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Today on Talking Biotech, it's really a pleasure to welcome Dr. Tony Shelton. Uh, Dr. Shelton comes from Cornell University, where he's an international professor of entomology. And last year I had the opportunity to see him speak at a class in Cornell about his work in creating and, and participating in the development of the Bt beringel. So this is a, uh, a uh, eggplant, or albergine, if you will, and, uh, and its deployment throughout Bangladesh. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shelton. Okay, great. Thanks very much for having me, Kevin. It's really great that you're able to join us because this is another topic that I think really helps people understand the good things that this technology can do that isn't tethered to a company, you know, all the things that people say about the negative side of this technology. But let's start back to the beginning. When we talk about eggplants, and it's it's a kind of an odd fruit or vegetable, whatever it is, technically a fruit. In the West, over here, we sometimes buy it at the grocery store. You get it here and there in a restaurant, maybe. But what does it mean to food security in places throughout Asia? Okay, so egg- eggplant is actually one of the most widely grown vegetables uh, throughout Asia. In Bangladesh, in particular, it's the second most popular vegetable right behind potatoes. So it is incredibly important. It's a good source of dietary fiber, vitamin B1, and copper, and magnum, uh, vitamin B6, niacin. So it's a pretty nutritious crop as well. Um, and it's grown, well, let's see, about 150,000 hectares of eggplant are grown annually in Bangladesh. In India, it's about three times that much. Um, a very widely used uh, crop. And, and so if we talk about the diet of people who live there, is it something that maybe you eat every day or maybe once a week? or how? I guess it depends on where you are, but in general, are there areas where this is a really important cornerstone of the diet? Oh, yes, definitely. In Bangladesh, again, it's the second most popular vegetable, so it's eaten uh, pretty much daily. Okay, and so what are the large uh, barriers to production of eggplants? Um, well, there's an insect called the uh, fruit and shoot borer. It's a, uh, a caterpillar that the adult moth lays its eggs on the either the shoots or on the fruit, and then the eggs hatch into larvae that just bore down into the fruit or the shoot. If they bore down into the shoot, they will kill it, causing the plant to become bushy and if one of those shoots is going to be would have developed into uh, into a flower then uh, that that uh, flower will not develop once the shoot is infested so it, it's really a major major uh, problem both in the 
plant during its uh, reproductive as well as its non-reproductive phase. I've seen uh, Pam Ronald show pictures of this in her talks where she shows it actually uh, where there's an insect that actually is eating the uh, fruit item itself, the alberg- or the uh, brinjal itself. And is that still a big problem or is it mostly in the vegetative parts of the plant? Um, it's a problem in both phases of the plant's development, but certainly if the larvae get into the fruit, um, they will just bore or mine in the fruit and you'll find these tunnels full of uh, insects and their, uh, their frass, what we call frass, um, or their waste. And that simply makes it unmarketable and also somewhat dangerous to eat, too, when you have infested uh, fruit. Well, yes, you, you open up all the avenues for fungus and uh, mycotoxins, other types of mm-hmm. uh, uh, problems that then can be truly toxic to humans. Right. And so when we think about the toxicity related to the agricultural aspects of this crop, um, what, how is the insect managed and controlled? Well, the primary management is just to spray it and to spray it regularly. So depending upon the area and the season, you know, it can be, there are reports of up to 160 sprays during the season. So this is a, you know, a four-month crop and you can figure that out and it's almost a daily application of insecticides. I think on average, though, it's probably about 80 sprays during the season and uh, they're Pretty nasty uh, sprays to uh, organophosphates, carbamates, some pyrethroids, and generally the farmers will mix all these insecticides together and then just spray with a backpack sprayer. Farmers really don't have any personal protective equipment like what we would uh, encourage people to use in the U.S. And uh, farmers typically report uh, skin irritations, lung irritations, etc., from spraying these uh, chemicals. And again, uh, you know, in in India, when I was talking to an eggplant uh, farmer, and it was he was just about to have the eggplant go to market, and it was just the eggplant supposed to be purple, and this was just covered with with white residue, and uh, obviously pesticide residue and he just was going to wipe it off and then have it go to market well that might wipe off the the color but those pesticides certainly get into the skin of the fruit and you know hazardous to to uh, human consumption as well he affectionately called it a pesticide bomb because it had so many pesticides on it and when i asked him if he ate what he grew he said no i don't uh, it's uh, it's pretty sad. You also mentioned a couple classes of uh, insecticides that, uh, you know, I'm not an expert in insecticides, and I think there's a lot of discussion about that on on the podcast and in the parlance of discussion of genetically engineered crops. And when we talk about things like uh, organophosphates and carbamates, what are those classes like? Maybe how do they work? And just real generally, and what are some of the risks of using those classes? And do we still use them here? So, organophosphates and carbamates tend to be, they're an older class of, uh, in classes of insecticides. They are nerve poisons. Um, some of them are still uh, utilized in the U.S., but the EPA has encouraged companies to go to other uh, classes of, of insecticides that are, that are a bit safer. Organophosphates and carbamates are relatively, they're, they're really broad spectrum, so they will kill the pest insect, but they'll also kill many of the beneficial insects as well. They're not very selective in nature, and they also have a high tox- relatively high toxicity to humans. I'm not against the use of, of pesticides when they're warranted, but um, we try and minimize the use of them wherever we possibly can. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that, you know, it, it, that they are used judiciously. They're also expensive, and there's not a lot of farmers that want to spend the extra money to apply, especially to large 
field ag crops, um, excess uh, insect control. Um, I don't. I don't know of any farmer who wants to apply an insecticide. Yeah, I also don't know any farmer who wants to suffer the loss from a pest species. And so what we try and teach farmers to do is what we call integrated pest management. And in that, we try and prevent the, in, say in this case, the insect from uh, causing any damage. But when it becomes likely that economic damage will result, then we need to implement some level of control, whether it be a, an insecticide, whether it be a biological control agent, etc. But what we really try and do in integrated pest management is to reduce the likelihood that a major pest will even attack the plant. And one of the cornerstones of integrated pest management is host plant resistance. Um, now we have a number of commercial crops, unfortunately not so many vegetables, that are uh, just bred to be resistant to a particular pest. And we try and, plant breeders try and uh, breed those to what we call the key pest in an area, whether it be a a disease-causing organism, or an insect. So if you can get host plant resistance to the key pest, you know, you're halfway home in, in uh, producing a good crop. Now, whether that host plant resistance is developed through traditional plant breeding or developed through genetic engineering, I really don't see any difference in, between those two. But what you really do need to do as a foundation for integrated pest management is to have host plant resistance. And in fact, that's what's been done by engineering uh, eggplant to produce a protein from a bacterium, Bacillus thuringiensis. So once the insect takes a little pinprick bite out of the plant that is expressing that Bt protein, then it gets a stomach ache, stops feeding, and dies. It's a great, great way of having host plant resistance. Now, that's really great. I know we've, we've talked a lot about Bt on, on the podcast, mostly in the uh, areas of, um, uh, of its mechanism. We actually had uh, Fred Perlack on, on uh, episode 28, where he uh, discussed how it worked and, and, and its application. So let's do this. Um, we'll um, take a short break here, and when we come back on the other side, you framed the question beautifully, or at least the problem beautifully, that there's a, a need for this very important food staple to, uh, to have resistance to the disease, and uh, that right now chemical controls are being used to do it. Maybe there's a better way to take that on. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, talking to Professor Tony Shelton from Cornell University. We'll be right back in just a minute. Hello, Talking Biotech aficionados. Thanks for listening. We continue this enterprise with the hope of spreading the infection of science. It's a curious pathogen that, when you contract it, makes you immune to nonsense and poor quality information. <laughs> like cupping. <laughs> well, now we need you to step up and be a shill for big podcast. Go to the place where you download podcasts and write a review for Talking Biotech. It can be positive. It can be negative. I don't care. Just share your thoughts, because that's the only way that I can get better at doing this. Suggest guests. Suggest guest hosts. Suggest a topic that you just want to understand better. Remember, this podcast is fueled by the kind interest of a wonderful audience, and your feedback helps keep us relevant and happy. Now, we've elected to not entertain sponsors or solicit donations. So your good vibrations fuel my groove. And remember, remember, tell a friend, write a review. And now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast with Professor Tony Shelton, International Professor of Entomology at Cornell University, who's up in Geneva, New York. And um, Dr. Shelton is talking to us today about the BT eggplant. 
or the brinjal, a food staple worldwide, that uh, especially in parts of Asia, that uh, has some challenges to growing it, which are based upon insect problems. And he's been instrumental in a team that has implemented a genetic engineering approach to limit the damage to this crop and resulting in what appears to be very positive effects for the people that grow it. So we'll go back to pick up where we left off. Um, when we contrast and compare different methods of insect control and what you mentioned about integrated pest management is so important. But when we talk about BT being produced by the plant and compare that to sprays such as carbamates or uh, uh, organophosphates, how do the two compare and contrast as mechanisms of control, especially on their environmental impacts? Okay, so... Um BT, which has been used as an insecticide, a foliar-sprayed insecticide, uh, has been used for maybe 70 years. And when it is sprayed on, the insect, uh, it occurs on the leaf, and then the larvae would come along and feed on it, and uh, then ingest that and get a stomach ache and stop feeding and die, usually in two to three days. Um, that contrasts remarkably with uh, the t organophosphates or carbamate insecticides that if a little droplet gets on the back of the insect or on the front of the insect or the insect walks across a residue, then that will go into the insect's body and uh, cause nerve damage and the insect will die. So the way that these act is fundamentally different. The BT has to be ingested by the insect. The problem with, you know, and you can say, well, why don't you just spray the BT on, which organic growers do regularly? The problem with, with that is that it disappears in about a matter of a couple of days. And so you, you really have to almost soak the plant in it on every day or every other day for the BT to provide as much control as it would if the plant were just engineering the BT and expressing that, say, in the fruits or the shoots. So it's a very different idea. I mean, in the case of BT, it's just a different way of applying it, either having the plant produce it or spraying it repeatedly. And that's really a major, you know, it's the same protein, has the same lack of toxicity to humans. It's uh, just a different way of applying that same protein. Well, and you also have to spend the time to apply it. You have to go buy a bag of Dipel or whatever you're going to, you know, however you're going to administer, administer it, um, which costs yeah. money. Um, so having the plant make its own protection seems like such a... I remember talking about this in our biology classes back in 1981 and thinking about how cool this would be to be able to see plants protect themselves against insects. And everybody was on board. You know, this is a brilliant idea. Yeah. And, um, so let's uh, maybe move forward a little bit to the project itself. So the, the um, can you tell me more about the project that financed and really initiated the efforts to develop the BT Brinjal, and um, where, where and when was that developed? Okay, well, uh, Maiko, which is an Indian seed company, uh, produ they produce many different vegetables and, and cotton, other field crops as well, so they had the idea of um, putting uh, BT gene into, into eggplant. And as they were doing this, um, you know, Cornell and USAID found out about it, too, and we felt that what we could do at Cornell uh, in, in India was to help facilitate the development and the deployment of this, of this eggplant. So a seed company like Maiko, you know, they make money from selling hybrid seed. And we took a kind of a novel approach because we said, Okay, why don't why doesn't Maiko donate the breeding lines that have this BT in it? Distribute those to what essentially are land grant universities in India. They can put it into their open pollinated lines, 
distribute that to those lines to growers free of charge or almost free of charge and then growers will start utilizing that and at the same time Maiko could also sell hybrid seeds to to growers in India so there was going to be what we call a poor pro um, outlet that would be the, the open pollinated lines and a another line of distribution of the seeds which would be through hybrids farmers love hybrids because they will uh, produce more uh, a better crop but they also you know do cost more so this is a two-pronged approach to getting this BT technology out there in India and uh, it was developed and field tested uh, went through all the biosafety authorities in India and then it became a political hotbed and uh, Greenpeace it's rumored spent about a hundred million dollars to derail the BT eggplant in India um, simply because they have this um, I'm not sure what to politely call it but <laughs> it is this diametrically opposed to genetically engineered crops not for any scientific reason, but really more for, well, in fact, some of them, some of the people in Greenpeace have said that it's, it's really our top fundraiser if we can get people to rally around the idea of being against genetically engineered crops that will provide us with funds that we can use for other things. So, well, unfortunately, Greenpeace has been against things like golden rice, um, papaya that resists uh, uh, papaya ring spot disease, a devastating disease throughout many countries and also they have been opposed to BT eggplant and unfortunately um, in February 2010 the Minister for the Environment, the last gatekeeper to really um, last gatekeeper for BT eggplant to be commercialized he put a moratorium on it and he put that moratorium in, on it and it still sits well, more than six years later what's odd about it I mean the Minister of the Environment you think should try and protect the environment well the insects you know they they don't care about any moratorium they will still <laughs> attack the, the eggplant and growers will continue to spray maybe 80 times during the season with some pretty uh, nasty stuff, so that's there's an unfortunately a very bad irony in there. Minister of the Environment, influenced by a uh, hundred million dollar campaign by Greenpeace, um, put a moratorium, and there it sits right now. Yeah, it's it's not unlike what we see in other countries where uh, Greenpeace has a very active presence that is not just working at the level of the politicians, but is also on the ground kind of tarnishing the reputation of technology before it can even be deployed. And uh, are there, uh, have there been, or is there, are there reports of Greenpeace describing this to the layperson as something that would be dangerous or cancer-causing or causing infertility, that kind of thing? Oh, yes. Pretty, pretty creative uh, with their ideas on that. I should mention, though, is once... In, in 2010, when this occurred, soon after that, we had the Minister for Agriculture and the Minister for Environment in Bangladesh come over to Cornell. Bangladesh is one of the poorest countries in the world. When they came over, they said, you know, we'd like to go ahead with BT Brinjal, BT eggplant in Bangladesh. Um, and I s said, well, you know what happened in India? And they said, yes, we are not India, though. <laughs> and I, my responsibility, the minister said, was I have 160 million people to feed and I have an environment to protect. And we don't have Greenpeace uh, so active over in Bangladesh. We're too poor of a country. So we would like to go ahead. And so we started working with Bangladesh. And in 2014... The government of Bangladesh made a, a, a regulation allowing the production of BT eggplant. So it was first grown by about 20 farmers in 2014. 
and uh, when it was out in the field, boy, we, there was a lot of uh, controversy, um, and that certainly got the antis pretty uh, active. 2015, we had about 108 farmers growing it. 2016, we had probably about 500 farmers growing it. And the farmers can save their seed and, and uh, you know, in fact, many of the farmers give it to other growers. In 2016, they're anticipating 5,000 farmers in Bangladesh growing BT eggplant. So farmers are, are not stupid people. They're very bright people. And, and in fact, if they see an advantage um, growing this BT eggplant, they will utilize it. So it's really on the uphill rise, and I don't see any way of getting the genie back into the bottle in Bangladesh. Um, it's been a remarkable success story. I was over in Bangladesh in March, and I was talking with one of the growers. He had about a uh, maybe a quarter acre plot. It's a demonstration trial. And in that quarter acre plot, he has BT eggplant in the center of it, of the plot. And then around it, there are two borders, two border rows of non-BT eggplant. And it was harvest time, so I went through the border rows, the non-BT eggplant. Every one of those fruit was infested. In the interior part of the field, there was no fruit that was infested at all. The farmer was so happy with this technology, and he had his, his father out in the field and his niece in the field. You know, they were just smiling. They were very, very happy. I asked him how many times he would have sprayed if he did not have this BT eggplant. And he said, I would have sprayed about a hundred times. I asked him how many times he sprayed this year with the BT eggplant. And he said he had to spray twice. And that was for the white fly, which is a pest that is not affected by by the BT protein. So, I mean, he had his father and his young niece walking in the field that in a normal, if he did not have the BT eggplant, there would be a lot of concern about especially young people walking through an eggplant field that had received so many insecticide sprays. But he had no problem with his father or niece out in the field. He was very ecstatic. He had sold everything in the central market, and he advertises it as uh, uh, reduced pesticide input, and so he was getting a premium for, for it as well. So I went away from that field visit thinking, you know, this technology can change people's lives. In a poor country like Bangladesh or in India or other places, it can change people's lives. And that was just a, a remarkable uh, feeling to be on a team that was um, helping change people's lives for the better. That is one of the um, it's one of the themes of the podcast is how do we use technology not to make new products that companies sell to farmers, which is still great stuff, right? But how do we have impacts on the ground with people who need help? And I think so much credit goes to the agriculture um, uh, secretary of. Uh, Bangladesh, our Minister of Agriculture. Um, can you tell a little bit more about her and what her um, how what her attitude has been and how she you know maybe a little bit about her that you might know? Um, she is a pretty strong-willed person <laughs> who uh, believes in science and believes in this technology and wants to make Bangladesh agriculture. Uh, productive and safe for the environment. And what a bold move that is for someone to just say, we're going to go ahead with this. We see what's happening in India, where it uh, has a moratorium. We see other countries debating about it. But Bangladesh, we're going to go forward. It's an amazing, uh, amazingly positive woman. <laughs> and I've talked with her about the need for stewardship of this valuable technology. We don't want the plants deployed and in, in such a manner that they will fail because of the insects evolving resistance in a few years. So we do have strategies to uh, delay the evolution of resistance and 
she understood this perfectly well. She uh, repeated, stewardship, stewardship, stewardship. That's what we need to do. And so that uh, really made me smile. Well, it's nice, but since the seeds are kind of given away or can be handed from farmer to farmer, how many of them are are not traveling with that stewardship message? And uh, are seeds actually getting back into India, where farmers may want to grow them because of the low inputs, but then fail to plant the uh, fugia and uh, stop uh, scouting because they feel that they have insect protection? Well, the, these are, are great, great questions. Um, we know that insects are very dynamic, and uh, you know they will change over time. Um, when we're starting off with this project, though, there will be a, a relatively low adoption rate. Uh, there has been of the BT eggplant because the seeds are just being produced, but it's ramping up. So, in two thousand seventeen, for example, have maybe five thousand farmers growing it. Um, if 5,000 farmers grow it, we won't have as much natural refuge, that is non-BT eggplants, out in the field. So we just really need to monitor any changes in susceptibility over time. So that's part of the stewardship. As far as uh, farmers, um, you know, keeping the seed and whether they're going to keep the seed for the refuge plantings, this is really a strong, we need a strong push for education to these farmers. Farmers see, um, you know, they have pretty good memories too, and if they see or hear about resistance and practices that will uh, lead to resistance, they remember and they will do all they can if they're educated to try and evolve, uh, avoid that situation. So education is a real key component to what we're trying to do in Bangladesh. As far as it getting um, into other countries, um, you know, there are certainly rumors that it has made its way over into India. India and Bangladesh share a border. Um, and Ron Herring probably talked about how BT cotton got into India when it was uh, um, not uh, regulated. And then farmers just started adopting it and threatened to go on strike if the government did not allow the registration of the BT cotton. And the farmers, uh, you know, won that argument. And what about, uh, so I, I, when I used this example of BT brinjal as one of the success stories of the technology that has directly affected the lives of people, I get pushback, and there are people who will say, well, no, it's been a miserable failure that you can find uh, um, assessments by this person who is some uh, scientist in Bangladesh who says that it's been nothing but um, a scourge to farmers. Are you aware of that kind of uh, counter-argument, and where did that come from? I am aware of it, and actually in 2014 when I was in Bangladesh and, uh, you know, watching these 20 farmers who had uh, been allowed to grow the plants. Uh, I went to, uh, while I was in Bangladesh, a news story came across my desk that uh, one farmer was saying that this was actually a, a disaster, a crop failure. So he went out to his field and asked him about that. And he said, well, a couple of people came up on motorcycles and they wanted me to, they were interviewing me and asked if I would say that this crop was a disaster, and I said, no, it's not a disaster, and just look around, and uh, that's not the story that they wanted, so they just went back and wrote their own story. <laughs> there was, uh, when it was first produced, though, it was or grown in these 20 fields, it was grown during the rainy season. So, although there were not any reported infestations of the eggplant fruit and shoot borer, there were um, some plants that were wilting because of bacterial wilt, an organism in the soil, and uh, you know maybe some of these fields might have had five or ten percent wilting plants, which were 
removed and then replanted with BT uh, eggplant. But again, it was taking the BT eggplant was taking care of its main targeted pest, and that's an insect. It's not any more or less susceptible to diseases than non-BT eggplant. So farmers really need to to manage it. And in fact, so in 2015, when we were working with 108 farmers, we said, okay, you, you have to rotate out of a solanaceous crop. You know, you really don't... <laughs> Don't put the BT eggplant in the in the soil that is already infested with this pathogen. Otherwise, you know, just like a non-BT eggplant, it will have problems. So, again, it's all part of what we call integrated pest management, where you think about the whole suite of practices for producing a good crop. So, um, you know, where does this misinformation come from? There was a Mark Linus, um, who is was a antibiotechnologist, and then uh, you know started reading about more, becoming more knowledgeable about the technology, and now he's a strong advocate for it. He wrote an article in the New York Times, an opinion piece, and there were a couple of letters, um, you know, uh, attacking him. And one of them said, you know, look, I talked with this farmer that you said loves this technology, and that farmer says, no, he doesn't. <laughs> so um, several months ago, there was a film crew over in Bangladesh interviewing this farmer who was kind of caught in the middle of this argument. And he's very, very clear that he loves this technology. And we actually have a video of him uh, talking um, on our on our website, on it's, the website is called um, bteggplant.cornell.edu, and it's an actual interview with the farmer um, saying that he he likes his technology. There's also a couple of other videos on that website. Of, uh, one in particular is three farmers that we interviewed who talking about this technology. So I'd encourage your audience to uh, just log on to that and look at some of these videos, and then they can make up their own minds. No, oh, that sounds great. I'll actually put a uh, link to the websites on uh, to the videos on the web on the talkingbiotechpodcast.com website, and uh, just go there, and I'll link that right up. And what about uh, I've seen some other really beautiful videos on this come from the Cornell Alliance for Science effort, and are are those the same videos or a little different? Um, we work very closely with Alliance for Science. Um, we overlap with them, uh, and I think we we help each other get the information out about the the facts about uh, biotechnology. I should also mention too that our project, funded by USAID, it's a three year project that started in October two thousand fifteen. Um, it's for BT eggplant in Bangladesh and also for BT eggplant in the Philippines. It's not commercialized in the Philippines. There were many field trials that uh, were run and some of those are now resulting in in refereed, peer-reviewed refereed uh, publications. Those are on the website as well. But Bangladesh, Greenpeace was uh, a strong adversary about having BT eggplant grown in in the Philippines, and they went to the Supreme Court and tried to get um, further trials blocked. Um, the Supreme Court heard the case and initially uh, agreed with with Greenpeace, and which was a an odd thing to do. But uh, earlier this week, they reversed that and they said, "We'll open the road for." Uh, further trials on BT eggplant in the Philippines, BT eggplant, and a number of other crops. So over time, I think things are changing, but uh, it certainly is a, an interesting time in which to be uh, working on these crops, these genetically engineered crops. But I, I got into this business uh, 
the reason I became an entomologist was I was interested in three things biology food security issues and environmental issues and it's great to now have the opportunity to use some modern technology to solve very old world problems <laughs> in a much more effective and environmentally safe manner. Now it's 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 really commendable and it is such a beautiful example of what our science should be doing. And, and what we are doing in universities that really do center around how do we make things better for people and the planet by using the best technology. And I think that, uh, you know, my feeling is that something like the BT eggplant, if the story gets bigger, if uh, starts to move to other countries, that it really can serve as kind of that first domino that you can hold up and say, look, everybody, this is doing good things for the people in the environment. Why do we stand against this technology? And, and let the air out of the sails of the, of the folks like Jeffrey Smith and Vandana Shiva that just promote um, fear and, and use a, a fear message and to, uh, to scare people away from technology that can help them. And uh, so what, what, what are, where do you see the eggplant moving next beyond, the, like, say, the Philippines? Are there other countries that are really looking at this? Oh, I think Vietnam would be very interested in it. Uh, Vietnam has started growing um, genetically engineered uh, corn or maize. Um, so there are a number of countries. This past, the eggplant, fruit, and shoot borer, is, uh, it's been a long-standing problem throughout Asia. It's estimated that you know just the infestation by this pest, even when it's regularly sprayed, is about a 67% loss. So <laughs> it's such a contrast to see an unsprayed BT eggplant producing perfectly clean fruit versus a non-BT eggplant that is sprayed regularly and still has a dramatic loss to it. So we'll see how this story ends, but what a bold move by the Minister of Agriculture in Bangladesh to say, I've got 160 million people to feed and I have an environment to protect, let's move forward. Yes, yeah, we, we need more leaders in the world like, like her. And I think time will be amazingly kind in, uh, to her when they look back and say she was the one who really started this trend where we were able to feed more people using technology. Yeah, but it's a, it's a critical time right now because, again, Bangladesh is the only country in the world to grow this, uh, well, the only developer country in the, de in the developing world to grow a food crop that is uh, a very, very important in, in, in their diet. So there is a battle going on by, you know, the proponents and the farmers versus um, groups like Greenpeace who are against this technology. And it's so ironic because, you know, Greenpeace when I was in college, they were doing some, some good things, and they, they still do some good things. But their stance on biotechnology has no scientific basis at all. And as they have said, they use it for more fundraising than anything else. So it's very unfortunate. One thing about the BT Brinjal is that this just seems to be the story that we've always been waiting for. You don't have a national, uh, multinational company. Farmers can do what they want with the seeds, and it's working. And how do we get this story out there better? It just seems so natural. You know, explaining uh, science to the general public is, is often very difficult. And you're certainly aware of those surveys that say, you know, 80% of the people don't want any genes in their food. And we know that we just really have that indicates we really have challenges in science education. Um, people, uh, you know, concerned about vaccinating their children because of possible autism. So these rumors start and they, they spread like wildfire. And it's really imperative that scientists speak up and try and inform the dialogue about biotechnology. And the eggplant one example is a beautiful example 
because there's no one who's really making any money on this, you know, <laughs> except for the farmers. It's not going into uh, into the pockets of multinational corporations. Um, it is just a a worthwhile project, and I'm reminded of the uh, Nobel Prize winner Lloyd Boyd Orr, who said, "You can, you can't have peace on empty stomachs." And uh, actually, Norman Borlaug used that phrase when he accepted his Nobel Peace Prize because to have social justice, you you really need to have people have uh, you know a full stomach. Well, going forward, if people wanted to learn more about the project, other than say looking at the uh, website, which was again uh, was bteggplant.cornell.edu. Correct. Okay. And if is are there other places that uh, in more of the traditional social media like uh, Facebook or Twitter that they can follow the story? Yes, Mark Linus. Um, if you could sign on to his Twitter account. Uh, you know, he is uh, puts out messages on a daily basis. I'm a little uh, slow on Twitter, um, but Alliance for Science um, also has a very active uh, Twitter uh, messaging on on this project. Anyway, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Kevin, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you very much. This was a wonderful uh, opportunity to talk to you and learn more about this outstanding uh, break. Well, I I would say a breakthrough in so many uh, social ways and how we can apply technology to change the lives of people. So thank you very much for being with us today. And that was Professor Tony Shelton, who comes from Geneva, New York. He's a Cornell professor or international professor of entomology who has been uh, an expert in uh, development of the BT eggplant, but also works on a number of other projects that hopefully we'll talk to him about in the very near future. In this portion of the Talking Biotech podcast, we are fortunate to talk to Hida Borsma, and he's joining us from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, Hi, hi, Hida. How are you? Hi, Kevin. I'm good. And you? Uh, well, having a good time. And I should call you Dr. Hida Borsma, right? You're, uh, yeah. Now, you are a, uh, a scientist um, who also... Now, are you a scientist who also is a filmmaker, or are you a scientist who turned into a filmmaker? Uh, it's the latter, actually. So I, I turned into a science journalist in some, sometimes in 2008 when I finished my PhD. And now, since a year, I'm also a documentary maker. And your um, your PhD is in uh, in microbiology. Yeah, microbial ecology. Yeah, I did a lot of uh, bacterial typing in the in the microsphere. So it's which is the area underneath the hyphae of uh, of mushrooms. Oh, okay, very cool. Very basic research. <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh, but th- but it puts you in a unique position to be able to examine the current controversies around food, especially around genetic engineering. And uh, I, this mostly is in reference to it, your upcoming documentary um, called Well Fed. And uh, when do you anticipate this one will be in wide release? Uh, we hope. We are still looking for, uh, somewhere to, to be, for it to somewhere to be broadcasted, but it's going to be premiered somewhere in November, we think. Okay, so November of 2016, this yeah, should yeah. be available. Yeah. And um, the the story is a really uh, beautifully shot, um, which I, I was able to see this um, uh, myself. And I really enjoyed it because it, it was kind of a story within a story. And the basic, why don't you tell us the basic premise, you know, starting from the beginning and maybe your interaction with your friends and, uh, and, and maybe take us for a walk through the major parts of the story. Yeah, the thing is, so we we actually started uh, me and uh, and a friend of mine who's a filmmaker, who's sitting actually next next to me at the moment, um, who we we got into a conversation about GMOs, and like a lot of my urban friends in Amsterdam, they actually oppose GMOs, and not because they know a lot about it, but but generally because they oppose capitalism or they oppose the works of Monsanto, and so we got into a conversation, and and I, th- I said, well. It's fine if you uh, oppose this, 
but be sure that you also know that you're also opposing uh, the use of this technique for poorer farmers. And then we got into a conversation and said, well, I don't know anything about that because the only thing I hear is about Syngenta and Monsanto. Uh -huh. So I thought, well, let's have a look. Let's go around the world and see different projects. So projects not uh, linked to uh, Monsanto, but small-scale projects where the poorest farmers actually um, they, they get a better life from GMOs. That was actually the start of the story. So we thought, well, let's go to Bangladesh because there you have a, a project which is specifically targeting poor farmers. And we actually wanted to, um, to, 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 see, to make some kind of a moral appeal. So if you oppose GMOs, you oppose also this. So we, we didn't want a documentary with a lot of facts, but we just wanted to show the lives of the farmers in Bangladesh and to show how their lives are improved by this technique. And that was uh, that was uh, really shocking because this is how I first became uh, uh, familiar with your work was through a video that was with the the digital story from uh, yeah. Al Jazeera, I think, or not? Because it was originally uh, published on Al Jazeera. Okay, okay. But, yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was it was a side story actually. It it, it has the same feel, so it, it uses the same um, photos and and uh, and film from the documentary. Okay, yeah, that's what I saw first. Yeah. And um, I, I was really surprised just at how well you were able to elegantly capture really the stories of the people who were being affected by this product. And the product was the uh, BT Brinjal uh, being grown in Bangladesh. And how did this transform with your experience actually standing there with the farmers? How did yeah. you find that this product was able to transform their ability to grow a crop? Yeah, the thing is, we, we started out by talking to uh, farmers who don't have access to the BT Brindle. And it's it's incredible to see how they perform agriculture. It's, it, it's really sad because they use such an immense amount of pesticides. They spray their uh, brindles, their, their um, aubergines. They spray them approximately 80 times. 80 up to 100 times a season and a season is 200 days so they have two seasons in a year which means they spray now almost every two or three days with very toxic pesticides to uh, to make sure that their crops aren't uh, infested with the uh, fruit and shoot borer and it's not only bad for their uh, health but it's also a uh, also very bad for their uh, finances because i think around 60 percent of the, the the money they invest are in are going into pesticides and then we went to the very few farmers actually still. There are only 250 farmers now who use this BT Brintel. And the difference was enormous. Because <laughs> they, they, they didn't have... They did uh, better yields. They had to use less pesticides. And their health was improving. So that it was so incredibly obvious how this technology helps the people there. Yeah, and I think one of the most shocking scenes for me was uh the one gentleman who goes out into one farmer goes out to spray his field and he puts basically one of those old silver tanks on his back and goes out and just starts spraying a cloud of pesticide and he doesn't have any protective equipment he uh looks um you know he, he but he's out spraying just like he's doing 80 times per season yeah, and I think that really is a was a was a very elegant setup to really the solution where you're showing marketplaces of people selling this brinjal that or this yeah. you know or aubergine eggplant. We have too many names for this thing. Yeah, it is, it definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, with this uh, this product, which is a food staple in uh, Bangladesh. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah and it, it was very typical, of actually funny, but also sad that they actually protect their hair. When they start spraying, because the, the 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 thing they're spraying is very sticky, but they don't protect their airways. They don't they don't put anything uh, uh, in front of their mouth, so they inhale this toxic pesticide like like almost every day. And we we also talk to a professional uh, pesticide sprayer who so who isn't a farmer but who is hired by farmers to do this this spraying, and he was so incredibly unhealthy. He he had pain he had burn marks on his uh, arms and he, he breathed heavily he was very unhealthy well yes i guess a lot of most of what they're using over there are kind of old school organophosphates yeah. that are highly regulated here or, or you know very or even banned in some cases yeah uh, yeah a lot of uh, a lot of those pesticides are banned at, at least i know in europe because of their toxicity profile 
And uh, what were some of the ways in which this product transformed the uh, scenario for families? Like when you would see maybe their children or, or the uh, well-being of those farm families? Yeah, the thing is, we, we talked to three different farmers who grew this uh, BT brindle, and they immediately said, like, our uh, income has raised is raised so many. How do you say that in English? Oh, <laughs> so is, heavily. Yeah, uh, that um, that they, they are able to buy more land or to do to make investments in their home because a lot of those homes are still made of uh, tin plates, and and they, they started transform transforming their houses into into bricks. So the, the standard of living of those people is, is, is is being elevated in three years. And you saw one of the farmers we actually who, who we spoke to was growing this BT brindle for the third year, and he um, he was as he was this smart that he started selling the seeds because um, often you hear that that people aren't allowed to to, uh, to save seeds from a genetically modified plant, but in this case it's no problem. And he was smart; he started selling this. Um, a lot of seed and seedlings to farmers in the neighborhood. So he, his income, his social position actually uh, is elevated in, in a three-year period. <laughs> and, and it's that, so clear. Uh, it, it was so beautiful to see the uh, to see this happening. And I think one of the, as you progress towards the end of the film, and not to give away anything, but some of the most um, powerful scenes are where you see the uh, the way that people raise food and what they eat and how they eat in the developing world or in a place like Bangladesh versus how we eat in the West. Uh, and, uh, and, and some of just the juxtaposition of the imagery was, was very powerful because it really made you appreciate what we have. And at the same time, here is something that can really change the lives of farm families in, a, in, a, in what is a very poor nation in general. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. It's one of the poorest nations in, uh, in 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 Asia, and it's it, it has a big problem, of course, because it's uh, it's also the most crowded country in the world. So it has to be, it has it, it's, uh, it has to do very efficient agriculture to make sure that that, that their whole that their um, that that all the people are fed. And uh, yeah, like 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 you said, we really wanted to do a moral appeal on the people here in the West because. It, it's so easy to be against genetically modified uh, food crops if you have enough to eat. If you have different, if you can make a, 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 an informed decision on whether you want to buy organic or not, and and here in the Bangladesh, it's it's all down to the bare essential. They people, those people need to feed themselves, and like one harvest, one failed harvest is the difference between being able to feed your family and not being able to feed your family. That and was GMs can be like the, the, the genetically modified crops can be a sure solution to that. And one of the uh, so you had many stars of this show. I think it was between you and, and your friend, um, also uh, you know the farmers, but also Mark Linus, who you have brought in throughout the entire film. And what was it like to work with Mark? And and why was he such an important person to connect to your story? Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever met someone who can like uh, make a point so eloquently as Mark Linus. <laughs> uh, it, it, was, it was very easy working with him as a filmmaker because like, we did a couple of interviews with a lot of people and then you have to repeat or a lot of, a lot of stuff isn't used. But we had like uh, I think one and, a, one and a half hour of film material and it's all we can use it all because it's, it's, it's incredible. But the interesting thing, of course, is that Mark Linus used to be uh, like my friends, they, he used to oppose genetically modified crops, and then he started really digging into it, and he's and and suddenly found out, well, I'm wrong. Th this is a technique that can make a difference in in developing countries. So that was that's we hoped that he will, uh, yeah, make that point also to my friends that it's time to change your change your stance on this topic. And how have your friends changed now that they've been able to be part of your film and also uh, spend time with you in these uh, in places like Bangladesh? Yeah, like uh, the, my friend who was with me, the filmmaker. He had, at the end uh, he, he was very impressed with the uh, with the uh, with with talking to to the people in Bangladesh and thought of, I was really wrong. I was actually uh, prejudiced against this technique. And it, he said, "Well, I think like we're in the West. We have this uh, this this set of beliefs." So you're 
either you're, if you're like if you're left wing, that means you're pro government, you're, you're pro refugees, um, you're pro women's rights, and at the same time you're against nuclear energy and you're against uh, GMOs. And even though you're not um, educated in all the topics, but you get the set of meaning. And this is he said at the end of the story, this is this is not how it used to be. And he, he, he really changed his, uh, his stance on this topic. Like he, he thought, well, there's no reason for me to believe anymore that this is a harmful technique. And on the contrary, it's a technique who can make, which can make a difference. And the rest of my friends still have to see the movie. I hope they, they will have the same transformation. <laughs> I think that's one of the beautiful parts of this film is that I don't know that you're going to always change people who have very strong feelings True. Um, you know about this, but because much of it is emotional and not mm-hmm. based on evidence to begin with, that they may say that you are just a filmmaker for Monsanto. You know, um, but but I think people who are still thinking about this, who are searching for answers, who want to make up their mind, I think this will be a very very powerful piece of evidence for them to think about. Yeah, I hope so. So, what is uh, next for you as a filmmaker? Uh, well, the, the upcoming years, I hope we will uh, travel around uh, various film festivals and get this message around. I think like uh, a lot of people who go, like uh, the, the, the general public who goes to film festival is often left liberal who have a antipathy against this technique. So we hope to be engaged in a lot of discussion and hopefully also make changes in the way people think. And if, if people want to learn more about you or your films, where can they find more information? Um, yeah, they should go to my website, which is uh, yeah, which is the Dutch website, of course. It's hard to translate in uh, in English. Um, the the best thing is actually probably maybe if you if you copy a link or something. Okay. To my website because it's uh, it's it's in Dutch, so it's it's too hard to to, to translate. <laughs> okay, so those who are listening, please go to the Talking Biotech Podcast website, and I'll have a link on the page that uh, takes you to the website, and then just use Google Translate. It'll translate the page for you, and you can at least learn more about Hida and his work and uh, future aspirations. I, I hope that this one is really the first one of a series, because I would I would love to see the same kind of treatment towards all the examples you know the banana and golden rice which you mentioned and and uh many other examples um what would do you think would be your next project if you could pick one yeah like you said we we actually also plan to go to uh to uganda to the to the banana project but we ran out of money actually <laughs> um but th- these are int- th- these are all interesting stories i think we really need to get the message out that this technique we are at the, like the verge of um, like, like a turning moment that this technique is not only used for what they say, what they call monoculture, but it's it's used in so many African and Asian countries. So I really want to to go to the Philippines and to Uganda and Tanzania to the to where the cassava is being transformed. Those are s- such incredible, uh, impressive and and important stories to tell. So I really would lo- love to go there. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. This is a Hida Borsma, who was the producer and also the, uh, um, uh, you actually wrote, well, came up with the concept and the theme for the story, right, for the movie? Yeah, true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, so uh, but the movie is called Well Fed and should be available somewhere in November of 2016. Thank you very much for joining me today Thank on the you. Talking Biotech Podcast. Great, thanks. So that's all for the Talking Biotech Podcast today. My name is Kevin Folta. Thank you very much for listening and learn this story of the BT Brinjal, the BT eggplant. Talk about this one when someone says there is nothing good about genetic engineering. This one along with the papaya, with insulin, with cheese enzymes, with the more familiar and less discussed victories of this technology need to be front and center because remember this technology isn't about feeding the world. This technology is about feeding a world. And if your world is the world of a Bengal farmer and his small family standing over a few acres of crops you need to protect, this is a very important technology and something that all of us should be fighting for. So thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk again to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. 
please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.